0: You are listening to a podcast from The National.
1: At some point over the summer, the cholera outbreak in Yemen had gotten so bad that some organizations were predicting one in every 40 would contract the waterborne disease by the end of the rainy season in September. That prediction was by all accounts conservative. Having already spent a turbulent decade, Yemen has now been gripped in a civil war between Houthi rebels and the internationally recognized Abdul Rabu Hadi's government. Since 2014, the conflict has deteriorated the medical facilities of what was already the poorest Middle Eastern country. Today, almost a million people have the disease in what is one of the worst outbreaks in recent times. Untreated, the disease has a history of wiping out entire islands with a fatality rate of more than 50%. Surprisingly, now organizations like Doctors Without Borders are closing their cholera treatment centers. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Caroline Seguin, the deputy cell manager who runs Doctors Without Borders in Yemen. She'll join us to tell us about her work in the war-torn country. Dr. Caroline, thank you for joining us. I just wanted to ask, I mean, we have reports of cholera coming out of Yemen, but yet MSF is closing their treatment centers there. I mean, does this mean that this is the end of the cholera outbreak? But What we see is that
2: there is a huge, uh, very huge decrease in terms of uh, number of cholera cases. In the center that we used to uh, to run, we don't see any more uh, cholera cases. We still have some patients coming. It's, uh, of course, uh, diarrhea, but the uh, majority of them are not cholera. Uh, in some part of Yemen, I think there is still some pocket of cholera, but not where we are working.
1: And you said that... You you're going to close uh, the treatment centers uh, to focus on other medical facilities. Is that right?
2: Yes. In fact, uh, we are working in Yemen since uh, two thousand seven, and since uh, the war, we see that there is a really huge problem in terms of uh, health. And since uh, the last months, we see that there is a huge and huge increase in terms of needs. Uh, We see that uh, basic health uh, is is, is a big problem. To access to to an hospital for, uh, let's say, normally many people begins to be a real challenge today. In fact, what we see is that there is a lot of uh, hospitals that have to close because, you know, the majority of uh, health workers didn't get any salaries since more than one year now, so they are not able to come. Uh, and so there is a lot of hospitals that were uh, not able to continue to, to run their activity. They don't have any funds to run it, so it becomes really uh, problematic. On top of that, we see that uh, the access of health is uh, is a big issue because there is a lack of uh, uh, transportation to go to the hospital. The cost of uh, transport for the population is very heavy uh, in the context of uh, of war years now uh, we see that there is hospitals that are shutting down in the meantime the cost of transportation is super heavy for the population so we have a there is a big problem to access to health care for the population in yemen today and we see that this problem begins to be huge and huge day after day even a, even a woman that needs to deliver that needs to to take a taxi to go in a hospital It's a real problem. They cannot afford uh, to pay just for a taxi to go to the hospital. So what we see is that we see a lot of women delivering at home. We see children coming in the hospital with very bad conditions. And this is, is new. We didn't see it before. And we see that month after month of war, this problem begins to be huge and huge.
1: Even before the war, uh, Yemen was the poorest Middle Eastern country, and you say that you've been working yeah. there for quite some time. Uh, but how much worse? Uh, how much worse does does war make this this situation?
2: It's difficult to quantify it, but uh, what I see uh, in the hospital that we we used to work on, it's General Hospital. We have some General Hospital, so we have pediatric maternity, and um, the same surgery. What we see is that there is a um, Uh, more and more uh, people coming in very bad condition because they come at the last moment when they don't have any choice. Um, We see more and more uh, cases of malnutrition. Uh, We see more and more cases of measles because uh, uh, the national program for vaccination doesn't run anymore very well. Uh, That was not the case before. There is less and less hospital running. There is just uh, private hospitals that are running, but to access to private hospitals, it's very expensive, while the population doesn't have any money. So you see, it's a real bad circle that is now in Yemen. Before it was not good, huh? we can say that uh, it was not good at all, but now it's even worse and worse. For example, in Sana'a, there is only one hospital that we are supporting that is able to to give a free access to health care to the population. Otherwise, uh, people, they have to pay. There is many hospitals, even if they run, that has no access to basic uh, medication. So even during cholera outbreak, there was some center open, and the people has to go in private uh, pharmacy to just pay for their drugs, while they don't have any money to to pay for it.
1: Almost, I think, a million cases of cholera were reported. So how bad was it when it was at the height? I mean, from what I understand, the end of the rainy season has kind of caused it to calm down. But when it was getting really bad and there were cases coming out every day, uh, I mean, what were your impressions?
2: In fact, the first impression is that uh, it was big, <laughs> really big at the beginning, and it went up very fast. So the first month uh, first month was really... Uh, an emergency situation, uh, we had, uh, our centers was plenty, uh, plenty of patients arriving in very bad condition uh, with, uh, uh, big dehydration, uh, and all that. So as MSF, we were able to, uh, open quickly, uh, some cholera treatment center a bit everywhere in the country. We were as well able to provide uh, decentralized care in very remote area. Uh, but it was really, uh, very big and very, uh, very tense uh, situation on top of that, there was some part of Yemen that was not accessible for us because of uh, security. I can speak only on the on the part of Yemen where we had access, but uh, unfortunately, there is a part nearby the front line where we were not able to access, so we are a bit blind of what happened in those area and we are scared that the mortality rate was underestimated for, for those cases. Mm-hmm. But let's say that now the situation really calmed down, uh, which is good, but that, that this doesn't mean that in the future we will not face other cholera outbreak in Yemen. And we are very worried for the, for the next but for this to avoid to have new uh, cholera outbreaks there is some basic measures that should be taken uh, like give access to clean water to the population. Hmm. To work on rubbish today as a, the the, national, the people working in national programs they don't get any salaries. there is plenty of rubbish everywhere. Uh, the rubbish are not uh, uh, taken into account. Uh, the access of clean water is not functioning very well. There is now, even in Sanaa, the capital, uh, there is no uh, real chlorination uh, program uh, in the capital, for example, and it's just in the cam- capital. So, uh, when it's come out of Sanaa, it's even worse. We need to take simple measures by just chlorinate the water and give access to chlorinated water to the population. Uh, This will have a huge impact, and this is just simple action that can be taken by international community to avoid the new wave. And new people die of simple cholera uh,
1: disease. Dr. Caroline, you can diagnose cholera uh, and other diseases, you know, in in Yemen. But, I mean, what about mental health? What about the, 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 the trauma that some of the patients have suffered? I mean, have you experienced that? Have you seen it firsthand? And what do you have to say about that?
2: In fact, we have a uh, we don't we have a psychologist in uh, one of our what we call trauma hospital in uh, in South Yemen. And we focus in this hospital of uh, wounded and victim of violence. So here we can say that we have people that are really traumatized by what they see. What is difficult as well is um, that for the moment there is no hope. Of improvement of the situation, and this is something very bad as well for the, let's say, the mental health of uh, of the population in Yemen. And what we see is people really traumatized. Uh, we have some staff. We work a lot. We provide some health care for the staff we work with. Uh, we said that it's a priority for us to to help them uh, because they are really uh, they face trauma. Uh, because of the war, and they face trauma because they are, as well, working in hospital where they have to treat a lot of wounded. Uh, they face uh, we face a lot of mass casualty uh, event uh, in the hospital we work with, so our staff is really traumatized. And what we see is that for them it's very hard because uh, first they they face a lot of violence in their normal life. They face a lot of violence in the place where where they work, and in fact they have uh, they are. Normally they have, uh, as there is a lot of unemployment in Yemen, uh, they are the ones who are getting money. So they have big pressure from their family uh, because they have to share the money they win with working with MSF, with all the family around. So they have big pressure of it. So we provide them some support with a psychologist, and we think that it's really needed. We have some staff that, for example, uh, in SADA, they lost all their family. We have one staff that uh, just, uh, the house has been bombed and he lost his his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, his wife, and his children. And now he's the only one alone, uh, alive, you know. So this is the reality of Yemen today. And it's just uh, some staff we work with and this just reflects the mental health of the population in Yemen. Unfortunately, We don't launch today a big program for mental health in Yemen because we are lacking, for the moment, we focus more on saving life. And this is things that we would like to develop a bit in the future as well.
1: All right, Dr. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, welcome, welcome.
1: Moving north, the Belfort Declaration hit its centennial this week. The decree is largely regarded as the first true push to promise the Jewish people land. Zionists often regard it as the beginning of their recognition. In actuality, though, it's a British colonial document decreeing to give land that the Empire did not own to people who did not live there. Of course, all at the expense of Palestinians. To put it in context, this would be the equivalent of Saudi Arabia agreeing to give the Netherlands to Hindus because they believed it served their interests. To understand why the declaration was made by the British Empire, one only has to remember that the colonial power was in the midst of World War I. The creation of the Israeli state came out of what London perceived as a shift in power dynamics in an unstable Middle East, resulting from the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Trying to establish a gap in the power vacuum, the Brits found an ally in promising a land that they did not own. In doing so, they had sparked one of the longest-standing conflicts in the Middle East, one in which Western powers have supported Zionists' ruthless oppression of Palestinians. The Balfour Declaration was the official start of Britain's support for one of modern history's worst crimes against humanity. And today, people around the world are celebrating it. I'm joined by Ben Linfield, who covered this story for us. He spoke to both sides on what they thought of the Declaration.
3: The Balfour Declaration was issued in 1917 by Lord Balfour on behalf of the British cabinet. And it said that uh, His Majesty's government views with favor the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine on condition that the civil and religious rights of non-Jewish communities would be respected. I emphasize civil and religious rights because it didn't talk about the political and certainly not the national rights of the Palestinians. And Israelis view the Balfour Declaration as a key turning point in getting backing for the Zionist ambition of establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Palestinians, by contrast, view it as the beginning of their disaster that led up to uh, the Nakba, when 700,000 Palestinians were expelled or fled in 1947. And they, in their view, it was a case of Britain giving away their land to someone else, kind of a a theft of their land from them.
1: So 100 years on now, I mean, is it still part of the public consciousness? What do uh you... what do people say on both sides of the argument?
3: It is still part of the public consciousness. Um, at the governmental level, the Israeli government is, is celebrating it. Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to Britain and, and is, and is going to celebrate the 100th anniversary with Theresa Ter- May. And in the Israeli government view, um, the Balfour Declaration basically... In gave the international backing that enabled the establishment of the state of Israel. So it's kind of a celebration of the existence of the state of Israel. On the Palestinian side, it's the beginning of the deprivation of Palestinian rights. And that's a process that the Palestinians feel is still actually going on today. Only the actor doing it has changed and is no longer... Great Britain, but is the Israeli government, which is continuing with settlement expansion in the West Bank and within Israel, adopting policies that the Arab citizens of Israel view as discriminatory. And meanwhile, of course, the Palestinians see that the refugee problem is unresolved and they feel that they're still living with disastrous consequences of the Balfour Declaration.
1: I mean, th- this almost feels like a, uh, a a colonial legacy and almost could even be framed as a colonial mistake. Uh, you, you, and you see that across the Commonwealth, how the British Empire made decisions that subjugated and oppressed hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, did you speak to people on the streets, you know, younger Palestinians? Were they aware of this declaration?
3: Oh, all Palestinians are aware of this declaration. In fact, um, one of the ways that the Palestinian side is marking it is sending 100,000 letters of school children to the British consulate in Jerusalem. And the uh, letters are pointing out the injustice of the Balfour Declaration. It's across generations. uh, The trauma of the Balfour Declaration has been passed down, starting with refugees from 1948, going to their children who carry with them uh, hatred of the British because of the Balfour Declaration and passed down to a third generation as well.
1: And moving forward, I mean, uh, is there a public dialogue going on on uh, whether it should be celebrated on the case of the Israeli side or, you know, condemned on the Palestinian side?
3: Well, on the Israeli side, I, I would say the great preponderance of people think that it is cause for celebration. There there was a controversy yesterday mm-hmm when an Arab member of Knesset from the Labour Party, the Zionist Union Party, said he would not be attending the, uh, the celebration in the Knesset for it. Um, he said he couldn't attend it be- because while the Jews got their state, the Palestinians continue to be without a state and he doesn't feel that he can celebrate under those circumstances and he was reprimanded by the the head of the party and even uh, associates of the head of the party suggested that he might not be on the party's list in the in the next election. Um, On the Palestinian side, uh, there's going to be a big gathering in East Jerusalem, Um, An academic, academics from abroad, Avi Schleim from Oxford University is coming and giving a lecture Um, and there are going to be demonstrations across the West Bank and Gaza. The main demonstrations will be in Ramallah and in Gaza City and the Palestinian leadership is also encouraging demonstrations across from British embassies throughout the world and the Arab citizens of Israel are going to hold a protest opposite the
1: British embassy in Tel Aviv. All right, thanks for joining us, Ben. Okay, sure thing. We move to the Gulf. It's been a dramatic scene in Kuwaiti politics. Opposition members of the Kuwaiti parliament vowed to grill ministers over allegations of mismanagement. Last week, two opposition MPs called the Minister for Information for an intense five-hour grilling session. Other parliamentarians promised to grill more ministers after that. But following that news, this week, Kuwaiti cabinet submitted its resignation a year after it was formed. A precedent has been set for this situation. The last time the cabinet quit after promises of MPs to grill ministers, the parliament was dissolved. Kuwaitis have gone to the voting booths seven times in the last ten years. That's four times more than they should have. Political confidence in the country is wearing thin. In fear of another parliament dissolution could disillusion even more youth in Kuwait's struggling political system. Courtney Freer is a research analyst at the London School of Economics, and she's been researching Kuwaiti politics for several years now. Courtney, what does this mean that the cabinet resigned? Are there fears of parliament dissolution real as well?
0: It's a good question. I think that in this particular case, I don't necessarily see cabinet's resignation leading to parliamentary dissolution. I think the reason for that is that we kind of expected the, this cabinet to resign. There was a lot of tension between the parliament, which is, of course, the first parliament to contain most of the opposition since 2012, um, and the cabinet, which was seen as kind of more um, more uh, loyal, regime loyalist to a certain extent. Um, so you have this kind of oppositional parliament always butting up to the cabinet. So I think depending on who's appointed to the next cabinet, that will dictate whether Parliament is dissolved, um, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, the National uh, Assembly Speaker, Marzouk al-Ghanem, said that after his meeting with the Emir, said that it wouldn't be dissolved. But he also said something interesting, which, yes, of course, it's the right of MPs to grill ministers, but that they shouldn't be preoccupied with what is often seen as a power move, when there are more pressing problems to address. I mean, what did he mean by that?
0: Yeah, that was an interesting statement. And I think it's kind of a shot at the parliament in the sense that there's this idea that using interpolations in parliament, using these questions, questioning um, sessions, is essentially a political tool. It's a way for the opposition to assert its discontent with the status quo. And so I think that oftentimes it's seen these types of interpolations are seen as holding up real policy making and holding up the real, in quotes, um, work of parliament, which is, you know, creating legislation, et cetera. So I think that's, That's his way of saying, yes, it is, of course, the right for Parliament to question ministers, but is it prudent to do so so frequently that Parliament doesn't actually get anything else done?
1: Right. And speaking of interpolation, I mean, we saw uh, what was a very... Uh, intense grilling session last week of the minister of information, but I mean, what were the reasons? I and mean, did that have to did did today's or this week's resignation have much to do with what happened last week? And other MPs, you know, promising to grill more ministers after that.
0: Yeah, I think it it hundred has everything to do with with the grillings, um, both the the ones that have happened and then also the ones that were kind of promised. So we had uh, 10 MPs submitting their votes of no confidence against the Minister of State, who's also the Minister of Information, of course. Um, And then we've had uh, another MP saying that he intends to question the oil minister, and then another group of three MPs announced that they wanted to question the Minister of of Social Affairs um, and Labor. And so you have all of these questionings kind of building up, and so I think it shows this building up of tension between this parliament which is largely made up of newcomers with a 60% turnover from the previous parliament and this cabinet which is seen as kind of the the old guard to a certain extent so i think that really there was this sense that this type of parliament could not work with this work well with this type of cabinet and so i think that's why we see the the resignation 100%
1: so, Sheikh Mohammed al-Abdallah is the uh, cabinet minister, but he was also the interim uh, minister of information. And many of the grievances that the two MPs had were not actually against him personally, but the former minister of information. And, I mean, a lot of the uh, 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 the criticism was, I mean, let's move on. That, that was a different time. Let's get to actually working on legislation, like you said. Right,
0: exactly. And I think this, this leads to this... This notion that questionings in parliament have been used more as a political tool than actually as a, as a check on executive power, which is, of course, what they were designed to be. So I think there is this kind of sense that perhaps these aren't as productive as, as they were hoped for. And what's interesting is that actually at the beginning of this parliament, so in back earlier this year, there, there, was, there was talk about grilling um, I believe it was the prime minister, and essentially over this idea, this notion of the revocation of citizenship for a political reasons. And actually, MPs and that minister ended up working out, coming to an agreement, and then an interpolation didn't happen. So that's an example of kind of where they've come to a compromise. But I guess at this point, it, that seems like it's it's not going to happen. That that there is this insistence on on questioning ministers, um, even even on issues that that may not. Specifically, be under their
1: purview. Right. And that was one of the rare instances where uh, you saw parliament and ministers actually, well, oppose each other, but also come to a conclusion. And I mean, this comes into another topic the more general idea of how does this affect Kuwaiti confidence in their political system? I mean, are Kuwaitis growing a bit weary of having a government that seems like it's constantly in limbo?
0: Uh, certainly, there have been several dissolutions of parliament and resignations of cabinets over even over the past five, six years, and so I think there's a weariness generally among the Kuwaiti population for this kind of uh, instability and, and the sense that the, the government isn't isn't able to get much done because there's these constant fights between kind of cabinet and parliament. And so, you know, for instance, the last dissolution of parliament happened largely when MPs weren't willing to vote in favor of certain austerity measures, um, particularly subsidy reform. And so there is this kind of I think weariness with with these repeated dissolutions, with this repeat, these repeated resignations of government. Um and I think especially at a time like now where where there's other there's International instability. There's the Gulf crisis ongoing. There's the broader kind of fighting in places. There's a there's a lot of kind of uncertainty, instability in the region. You have also the the Abdali cell incident that happened over the summer. Uh, but I think in the in this environment of regional instability, more generally, especially with the Gulf crisis that's ongoing, there's a desire for more um, stable and continuous governance. I think inside of Kuwait, and so we'll see if. when the new cabinet comes in, whether the parliament is more willing and able to work with that uh, body of ministers.
1: Courtney, just walk us through, uh, you know, briefly, what are the next steps now that they have uh, resigned? And then more of a prediction, but how does the parliament go forward after this?
0: Right, so the next steps, of course, the emir has accepted the resignation of government. And as as of now, that cabinet remains as the caretaker, um, in place for until the new cabinet is announced. And I'm not entirely sure when that new cabinet will be announced. But then once that comes into, into play, um, we'll see kind of how the, the parliament reacts. It's my, my prediction is that there will be some turnover in cabinet, that it's in no one's interest really to have these continued resignations of government and also these continued interpolations of ministers. So I think we'll see a, a different cabinet coming in um, in the next, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about the timeline there, um, but then it's, it's up to parliament, I guess, as to how, how they react. And again, this is a, a parliament where we have a, a pretty strong opposition block of about about half of the, half of the members, half of the elected members. And so Um, if if they decide that these um, new members of cabinet are not to their liking or are seen as too kind of close to the government, we could see another uh, resignation, more questionings, potentially dissolution of parliament.
1: Courtney, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Caroline Seguin, Courtney Freer, and Ben Linfield for joining me on another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank our producer, Manuel Sumuglu, You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasal Wesmi. Thank you for listening and goodbye.